You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week that focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. We've got Reverend Dr. Rodney Sadler Jr., who is a co-editor of the Africana Bible, which is being used in our inverse community, as well as the African American Devotional Bible and author of books like The Genesis of Liberation, Biblical Interpretation in the Antebellum Narratives of the Enslaved, and Can a Kushite Change His Skin? An Examination of Race, Ethnicity, and Othering in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and as, along with that, he's the Associate Professor of Bible and the Director of the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is a kind and humble brother. We are excited to have him here. Um, and we have a couple of different connections. I know Jared and Rodney have their own connection, but I've known him indirectly through my colleague and dear friend, Emerson Parry, who also co-wrote uh, Genesis of Liberation. So we're just so grateful to have you. Welcome to Inverse Community. It is wonderful to be with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. Rodney, um, uh, a particular text that you have chosen, and maybe we need to give a disclaimer right at the start. It's weird. Um, it's, it's a strange text that there's a number of things going on, but maybe stranger than the text itself is how it's been used, uh, particularly in your part of the world. We're wondering if there's a portion of that text um, before uh, we explore your story and your scholarship that you'd like to read to kind of ground our imagination in um, what we're exploring. So now I, I have to tell you, I picked the text, not because it's a easy text, but because I think it's a fun text to wrestle with. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and it has a, a very, very interesting history. I'm teaching a class in Genesis right now, so uh, it's fresh on my mind. But this text is from Genesis chapter 9 uh, that I lift up to you. I'll lift up the Genesis chapter 9 passage and tell you why it's significant later on. Uh, it says simply, uh, the sons of, uh -oh. I'm sorry, I have to do this. <laughs> I too am spectacled and understand that. I, I feel your pain. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole oath was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk. He lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. Uh, and then after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Uh, I know, not a fun text, not a, uh, a simple text, uh, not an uh, easy text. It's a fraught text. But I lift this up because it is a text that has had such a significant influence on the history of people in uh, the Americas. Yeah. Uh, African-Americans were, because of this text, read as 
chosen by God, condemned by God to be slaves. This text originally is written uh, in a context in which uh, people are trying to, uh, to determine why it is that they should have access to another person's land. Mm. The original right. version of this text was written in order to serve as a legitimating ideology for the dispossession of the Canaanite people. Mm. It was a, a reason, a raison d'etre for the fact that the Israelites could move into another people's land. They must have done something wrong. There's got to be something they did. And this text was lifted up to suggest what they did wrong. Right. Now, if you look at the text, you'll realize it's wholly problematic. It starts off with three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, if you note, uh, the birth order is always attended to the way that they're related in the biblical text. So Shem would be the oldest, Ham would be the second son, and Japheth would be the third. The story has all these confusing details. So when Ham is mentioned, he's twice deemed Ham, the father of Canaan. Ham, mm. the father of Canaan. And then subsequently, when it says, when Noah awoke from his drunkenness, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, in theory, his youngest son is Japheth. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he ends up waking up and cursing uh, someone that's not his son, but his grandson, i.e. Uh, uh, Canaan. And this becomes part of the story. In essence, Gerhard von Rad looks at this text and he says that what's going on is we've conflated a text. We've had to harmonize this text with the passage that comes afterward in Genesis chapter 10, which talks about the three sons of, uh, of Noah as the people, uh, those who populated the whole earth. And they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the Hamites being the, the people that populate the vast portion of the world that was known to them, uh, including Egypt, uh, Libya, Put, uh, uh, the Assyrian kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdoms, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Shem, the ancestor of the Semitic people, uh, primarily those in Canaan in that region, and Japheth, who we think of as the ancestor of the European peoples, but probably is a local ancestor of this just general area near Canaan. But because this was read as the repopulation of the whole world, they had to find a way to put everybody in it. So a text that was originally written, probably with three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Canaan, a very local text to Palestine was expanded to become this larger global text that refers to all the people of the world. Mm. Now, what happens with this text in subsequent interpretation, the text that was originally meant to be a legitimating ideology for the oppression of the Canaanite people, the reason that we can dispossess them, take their land, uh, denigrate them, make them, slavers, uh, make them servants, make them slaves, uh, in later on interpretation becomes useful again. I often call this the curse of X, because uh, you pay your money, you take your choice who you want to curse with it. Uh, and later on, the curse became the curse of Ham. At this point in time, uh, in the 18th, 19th century, in European and American context, uh, they reinterpreted the sons of Ham, uh, the sons of Noah, to be the ancestors of the three races of people. This Enlightenment idea of race and racial development was infused into the biblical text in such a way as to denigrate uh, the people of, who were descendants of Ham. Mm. So this was reread, this, this curse that never curses Ham, if you look at the text, it never curses Ham, was reread in the American context as the curse of Ham, meaning they read this as Ham, the ancestor of Black peoples, the curse of Black peoples, and therefore it became a justification for the enslavement and oppression of African-Americans. We literally see laws being written in states like uh, South Carolina in 1820, laws being written in states like Virginia in 1822 that utilized this biblical text as the basis for why it was that blacks should be enslaved in America. And Rodney, this, um, yes, well, please. Drew and I were uh, talking just before uh, you came on about um, how I'd never encountered that text that way until I was 20 years old and living in the US, but never heard it before. Um, Drew, do you, do you want to share about where you first heard it? I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's I, I found it, I still find it fascinating. I remember so because I think many people today like to think of the Christmas as something like, oh, generations ago, and it's over with. But I remember coming up as a young person 
And there was um, a couple, uh, two young women who are about my age, sisters, who um, they were, their parents sent them to a white Christian school. And um, their, their dad was black, their mom was Puerto Rican. And they remember saying, hearing from the teacher, their Bible teacher, Curse of Ham, and also explicitly talking about interracial marriage and things like that. And like all of that was being done. That's my age, you know what I mean? And that was, so it's a whole gener. So it's not that long ago that these things were even being pushed. Um, And so, yeah, I was familiar. And then since, I mean, I think I've always heard in the black community, people pushing against it, but that, so I've never heard it used directly in my space, but I know people that have literally un, uh, been under that kind of teaching. Yeah. 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 And, Roddy, um, uh, please, I know uh, that Drew say. has a, a, a question um, for please. you, but just to play out the, the context um, here in Australia um, and elsewhere as well, um, uh, these texts were also utilized in terms of um, land theft um, from the indigenous peoples of, of Australia. Um, uh, Ian Paisley, the, the famous Presbyterian um, preacher, Um, in Northern Ireland used these texts into the 80s to talk about um, the indigenous Irish people, the Catholic people. Um, So these texts were still being weaponized in my dad's generation in Ireland as justification for British imperialism and and, um, taking the island. So these texts, uh, um, while it might not be in people's face immediately, it's definitely in the air in terms of how they've been weaponized um, for, for land theft and colonization and slavery. Right, right. And, so, and I would go further to say that if we yeah. look at the text, we probably will find instances in South Africa of this mm-hmm. being used there. I know mm-hmm. that we'll find instances in Palestine of this mm-hmm. being used against indigenous Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Texts, uh, this is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So before we, we'd like to start off just a little bit with script, but we want to actually step away from that and then circle back to that conversation that, that you've started us with. Because one of the things that we really value is the connection between how we read scripture, but also um, recognizing that we all have a lens that we bring to scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we like to think about how our own story, how our own journey um, is theology, is a lens, is a hermeneutic, right? And yeah. so uh, the first question I just want to ask you off the bat is, if thinking about your own personal story, like when do you even remember like encountering scripture? Do you have any particular stories yeah. of, of encountering the Bible at, at the earliest ages? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I think that uh, my life was defined by the Bible. I grew up as a, a black Baptist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it's pretty hey, much what you read. Really? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, uh, the first book I remember reading was the Bible, or at mm. least the, you know, the, that version of the Bible that had the, 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 the little sort of slightly brown Jesus on the cover and all the colored children all around him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the first book that I really learned to read. Uh, when I was in high, uh, in high school, in, in elementary school, and junior high, I used to read Bible comic books, and it was, uh, these were the things that were given to me to keep me excited. Of course, I get my Spider-Man and my Superman too. But, <laughs> of course, uh, of course. You had to get a little Jesus in there, and uh, oddly <laughs> enough, a little bit of um, a, a little bit of other uh, superheroes in the Christian faith were brought into that. So the Bible has always been part of my life. Uh, when I was a kid, I literally, I probably spent six out of seven days uh, in our little Baptist church in Philadelphia. Went there for 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 a kindergarten or nursery school and. I uh, was there for Sunday and had to sing. So sometimes seven days a week, you're preparing to sing on Sunday. Uh, right. So that was part of my life. And I was raised in that tradition. Uh, the Bible for me also, though, I think when I was about six years old, I moved to Bermuda. And this was a significant reshaping of the way that I, I understood scripture. Mm-hmm. I really began to encounter things like Bob Marley, Peter Toss, mm-hmm. uh, Bunny Whaler, uh, Jimmy Cliff. And what they did is they uh, they transformed me. That was my introduction to liberation theology. Yeah, and they wow. helped me to understand that the Bible was actually by, written about a group of sufferers, the outsiders, whom God was standing with and helping and lifting them up. And that gave me a different perspective on the scriptures I'd heard before and the value of them as tools of liberation. So for mm. me, the Bible had been, uh, I, I guess, Robert Nesta Marley has transformed the way I think. And even before James Cone got to me, Marley mm-hmm. got to me. Uh, yeah, and yeah, sort of opened good. my eyes to who God really was, the God of the oppressed. 
Wow. Rodney, in those early experiences, would you have named your experience of the Bible as something that was liberating or oppressive yeah. or is, is it more confusing than those two options? I think it was, uh, I think there was probably a complex web there. Uh, I was raised in an evangelical background in a tradition in the American context, which was slightly oppressive. Uh, it, it, it shaped me in a way that kept me from seeing, again, the full liberative potential of the Bible early mm. on. But my parents always sort of worked against that. So mm -hmm. I remember when I was about uh, maybe about four or five years old, my parents bringing home a version of the Bible that had pictures of black and brown people within it. Uh, this is long before Cain Felder's uh, original African Heritage Study Bible. But it was mm. interesting just to see uh, that they imagined the world, uh, the biblical world, to have black biblical figures in it. And that sort of was one of those eye-opening moments. Huh, maybe my people were more uh, at play here than I thought. So I think that there was, there was always that, that notion that there was a liberative tendency here, but then there's this dominant uh, sensibility that is trying to suppress that liberationist ideal. Mm. And how do, you, how do I live in that uh, liminal space in between those things? And that, yeah. I think, was the early part of my existence. I uh, spent a good deal of time, in, well, all of my high school years were spent in a Quaker school. And you mm. can imagine, it was a totally different reading of the Bible. That's right. Much mm -hmm. more of a liberative lens on scripture that was manifest when you read Fox and people like that and how they understood scripture and responsibility to the poor and things like that. So, so I've had a, an interesting mixed background. And then going to Howard University School of Divinity was really, uh, I mean, I got to study with uh, Kane Hope Felder, the mm -hmm. uh, Troubling Biblical Waters. I got to study with Kelly Brown Douglas, the Black oh, Christ. Wow. I got to study with so many of these people who are cutting edge and really yeah. were pushing a different liberative vision. Um, uh, Elias Farada J. Jones, uh, who uh, was a significant figure. He eventually became a Muslim, but he was a significant groundbreaking figure in theology. So uh, it really did help me to see a much more liberative uh, version of scripture. So yeah, uh, I, I hope that helps. But, uh, but I, yeah. before I got to that point, I spent four years with Campus Crusade for Christ. And four mm -hmm. years sort of working in uh, a system that was much more mainline uh, in orientation that did teach me so much about scripture, teach me so much about the faith, but mm -hmm. in some ways suppressed that liberative tendency a bit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. no, that all makes sense. I mean, I read number one. I don't know. If, so I actually I'm from Norristown. So that's where I grew up. Um, and then and I also lived in like West Oak Lane, East Germantown for about eight years. Um, my dad's from Germantown. So Philly. And I, when you talk about Quakers, I know the Philly Quaker world and all of that. Um, and but I also resonate with a kind of what I usually call black evangelicalism. Right. Something mm -hmm. different than mainstream white evangelicalism. But certainly working within some basic assumptions and frameworks within that, that certainly didn't understand the full implications of God's deliverance and liberation. Yeah. yeah wow. um, and, and so, yeah, I think that's really helpful. So I'm curious as you think about this nuanced and complex um, expression and you're thinking about, you know, the work that you do now, which is, I mean, you're a biblical scholar, you've written all this stuff. What from your own lived experience and what in terms of your own scholarly development as well shapes your lens for how you read scripture that might be a gift for others? Like, like how do you come to the text? So there's one thing, I'll just I'll give this to you as a tidbit before we get started. Uh, yeah. Usually when I'm talking about a text like this one uh, in Genesis chapter nine or Genesis chapter 10 or uh, something in Judges, or I'll, I'll lift up this basic principle. Be careful how you read the text. Yeah. Any mm. reading of the text that lifts you up high enough to put your foot on someone else's throat Mm. is a wrong-headed reading of the text. Mm. Ooh, that's, that's, a, that's sort of uh, what I constantly keep out there. How do I read this text and realize that I'm not the insider? That's something yeah. else I like to do. When I teach New Testament, I'm a Hebrew Bible person, but uh, Emerson lets me play around the New Testament from time to time. <laughs> and so uh, when I teach New Testament, I like to lift up that notion that uh, we often think about ourselves as Western Christians as the center of the faith that we are those who are dominant and we are the ones who shape it. We, we've even ignored the Palestinian church. Like, who are you people? Mm -hmm. How do you mm -hmm. come into the faith? That's right. uh, but uh, how do we begin to dislocate that? How do we begin to remind us that we are the wild olive shoots uh, engrafted on a rich root that is not our own, that we are outsiders brought in by God's grace. And as outsiders brought in God, by God's grace, we should 
always come with a sense of humility. We should always read the text with a sense of humility uh, yeah. and never look at it as a, may, a way of lifting us over anyone else, but yeah. always look at it as a way of God created an equal table that God invites us to. And we need to be those who celebrate that, uh, that egalitarianism and that sense of welcome as we look mm. at the text. Oh, that's so good. So good. Rodney, I just want to say already, you're welcome back anytime. Like, um, <laughs> you, you're, uh, you're kind of, and Drew, I don't know if um, uh, I told you this, but it was Rodney who introduced me to Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, oh. Not just the writing, but actually in person yeah. um, uh, when uh, we're at uh, Proctor together one year. So um, nice. I'm, I'm very in, indebted um, to both uh, your scholarship and your example, Rodney. I, I want to bring us back to um, what doesn't show up on the flannel graph of Noah. Um, there's the ark and that's usually the happy ending in Sunday school, right? But you've taken us a couple of chapters on um, to this strange text. As uh, I, I would love for you, um, particularly given um, your scholarship and work around um, these uh, narratives of, of freedom that often get to referred to as um, uh, slave narratives, but they're actually like, uh, people who have become free uh, re reflecting back on their experience of slavery. Um, how, how would you name how Genesis 9 was used uh, in the history of the US? And would you bring us into how um, those who had been emancipated then interpreted these texts despite how they were interpreted by a, a white supremacist settler colonial culture? Mm -hmm. So uh, let, me, let me start off in that uh, vein right there with the sort of white supremacist view, uh, because that was sort of the backdrop against which African-Americans were introduced to these texts. Uh, they heard these texts as a way of suggesting that God made you a slave, God shaped you to be a slave, and this is the way you're supposed to, to live. A great book on this is Stephen Haynes' uh, The Curse of Ham, uh, and I encourage you all to take a look at it. That gives you a great background on this. So they... Uh, uh, you see people like Josiah Priest, who's a, a northern a New York Presbyterian minister, who look at this text and basically goes on a, a tirade against uh, Black people, saying that they were uh, cursed by God, they were intended to be slaves because their morals were degraded, and every aspect of their being is corrupted. And, I mean, and you, you're like, well, it doesn't say that in the text, but uh, it didn't really matter. They were infusing these texts with a... Um, a view of race that was predominant. Race had overshadowed God and God became a tool for perpetuating a racialist understanding. Uh, at my seminary in particular, a union uh, used to be Union Theological Seminary, now Union Presbyterian Seminary. In the mid 1800s, they hired a gentleman named Robert Louis Dabney. And Dabney was a brilliant, uh, brilliant theologian, uh, incredible theologian, incredibly uh, gifted as a writer. Uh, but he believed that the South was uh, doing the right thing by perpetuating slavery. It's found in scripture, it's found throughout the New Testament, it's never critiqued, therefore slavery is right. He believed this so much that uh, he, and he put, I think about $400,000 of his inherited wealth he invested in the Civil War. He was the chaplain to Stonewall Jackson. And in the aftermath of the Civil War, he writes a book called A Defense of Virginia and suggesting that Virginia should have won the Civil War because it was on God's side. And then he goes through and he talks about this passage. And he says that this passage demonstrates uh, that uh, this is not just a, uh, a statement by, uh, by Noah, but this is a, a statement by God, condemnation of, uh, of horrid behavior. I'm like, this dude just saw his father naked. I mean, what is this horrid behavior? Oh no, but this is condemnation. Uh, for this corrupt moral sense uh, and utilize this to define blackness. Now, what we don't tend to understand is that, you know, we say, and I love the way that you introduced this, Drew, that this is the way people used to think, and this is the way people thought 100 years ago. The unfortunate thing is we haven't really critiqued the way that we thought 100 and some odd years ago. So yeah, we've been wow. teaching the same thing over and over again, over and it sort yep. of continues to perpetuate itself. When I used yep. to uh, work with Willie Jennings uh, in his uh, Black Church Studies class at Duke mm -hmm. back in the 90s, uh, it never failed. I'd have 20, 15, 20 students each semester, and it never failed. At least five of them would say, oh, I heard the curse of Ham. 
Oh, I heard that in my Sunday school. I heard it from my mm. grandmother. Oh, I heard it from my, my friend at school. Uh, this is why mm. blacks are less than whites. So this brand of thinking uh, really became ingrained in the American psyche and continued to influence uh, biblical interpretation. And to a certain extent, I think it still does. I still see hints of this sort of notion that blackness is fundamentally corrupt and it creeps in in subtle ways. Uh, great scholars that you respect highly, well, you'll see that, that racialized bias that comes from this way of thinking. So when African-Americans first encounter these texts, they do it uh, in a way that they, uh, they, they can't say but so much against it. This is what's been given to us. This is the way the text has been written. So for example, Genesis chapter 10 really talks about the breaking down of the human population and the sons of Ham. Uh, and the, the way that it was viewed in the world is Ham is black. The sons of Ham are the uh, ancestors of the African people. Uh, therefore, we are the sons of Ham. And whites use that to curse them. So uh, African-Americans develop what I call an acceptance reversal paradigm. Mm. Uh, and by acceptance reversal, they said, okay, we'll accept the fact that you say uh, that Ham is black. We'll accept that. But then they reverse the implications. Yes, Ham was the ancestor of the Egyptians, great empire, the ancestor of the Babylonians, great empire. So we have a great legacy uh, that stands behind us. And this is sort of the way that African-Americans often were reading texts with this acceptive reversal paradigm. And you see this a lot in the, the narratives of the the, the formerly enslaved, these liberation narratives that you see, uh, Frederick Douglass and uh, Robert, mm. uh, uh, Peter Randolph and all these folks that are writing, uh, you see this kind of readings uh, occur over and over again in these texts as they begin to utilize them as a way of reimagining their identity. Uh, Lewis, uh, Robert Lewis, who writes in 1844, one of the first African-Americans to write a thoroughgoing uh, analysis of the biblical text really does utilize that as a framework to say, we as African people are mentioned in the biblical text, we're mentioned in a positive way in the biblical text, and we're given a glorious past in the biblical text that has been lost, and we need to reclaim that. In the latter part of the 19th century, we see uh, people like Rufus Perry, who writes a book called The Cushite, uh, that's part of the Ethiopianist movement. You see people turning back to the text again. Uh, the text becomes a way of establishing esteem. So they accepted the premises that were utilized by the whites who were using the Bible against them, reversed the implications, and then used it as a tool for esteem and to lift them up. It was a, a powerful, remark uh, remarkable, uh, sub sub uh, subversive way of reading the text. Uh, I often utilize a passage, um, I think this is in Genesis of Liberation too, uh, from this uh, Colored Pompey. Uh, I think this is from Peter Randolph's work. The uh, story goes that uh, Colored Pompey was helping his master get ready uh, for the evening. His master was a pugilist, so he'd go out and fight. Uh, so his master comes to him, and he's all dressed up, and he says, how do I look, Pompey? He says, you look fine, master. You look right fine. He says, what do you mean fine? He says, master, you look like one mighty lion. He says, Pompey, what do you mean? You've never seen a lion before. Said, yes, I did, Master. I saw one over in yonder in that field. He said, Pompey, you old fool. That's not a lion. That's a jackass. <laughs> really, Ma really Master? You look just like him. <laughs> uh, it's that, sort of, that sort of subversive way of reading the texts is what we see African-Americans doing. Finding ways to lift themselves up with texts that were used to tear them down in other ways. So uh, mm. this is sort of, I think, a part of the, the magic that was found in uh, African-American hermeneutics, the early ones and even the later ones. Uh, I often like to say that African-American biblical hermeneutics, often thought to be the byproduct of the Black theology movement, is actually a reflection of a mode of reading scriptures that goes back to the mid-1800s. Mm. Uh, the same way that we see Frederick Douglass, the same way that we see Robert Lewis, the same way that we see these people uh, delving in the text is the way that people have been reading the text uh, since Cain Felder. So. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really interesting because, uh, and I, I did say this to Jared as well before, like rereading this, it just hit me again that this is that the justification the kind of anti-Canaanite justification in some ways gets used in multiple ways, right? Not only for in, to justify indigenous genocide, but then 
to justify racial oppression and anti-Black racism. And I'm curious, um, um, how would you say, what would you, what, how would you describe some of the questions that contemporary Black scholars are bringing to this text as they're wrestling with it now? This particular text? Yeah, this particular text. Uh, uh, what, 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 how, how, or maybe, I, maybe more specifically, how are you? How do you enter into and wrestle with this text um, in the present? Yeah. So, uh, so there's, I'm hearing two questions there. Uh, yeah. One is sort of the range of African American interpretive moves, uh, and I think that this is uh, one of the things that I hope people understand is that African American biblical hermeneutics is not one thing. Right. It's not one way of reading the text. There mm -hmm. are a multiplicity of ways. So, for example, right. people like Cain Hope Felder uh, begin yeah. to read the text as a corrective historiography. Cain right. Hope Felder, uh, Charles Kofer, and people of that ilk. Uh, people like Randall Bailey, uh, right. brilliant biblical scholar, yeah. uh, read it sort of as an ideological critique. Uh, they're looking at sort of the, the way that this text has been used to present oppressive paradigms and how do we begin to shift gears and move beyond it. Uh, people like uh, Cl uh, Clarice Martin and Renita Weems begin reading it through a womanist lens uh, mm -hmm. and utilizing this womanist framework of interpretation that you've seen with Kelly Brown Douglas uh, to read the biblical text, to lift up the stories of Black women in the narrative, uh, to read it through the lenses of contemporary Black women and to see what we find there. Uh, people like um, uh, Vincent Wimbush are looking at the text and saying, this is not the only text that's important for us. We need to valorize a, the way that African-Americans have distinctively read this text, forget exegesis, forget European interpretation, forget what the Germans have done. How have we read the text? How do mm. we support that? And then they've said, uh, but our scriptures go beyond the Bible. So how do we read other stories that we've written as supporting our understanding of who God is and how God relates to the world? So I think there's a, uh, there's a mix that we see with African-Americans and we see all of those kinds of things coming, uh, coming to bear on a host of different texts throughout scripture. Uh, this text is important for some, probably more important for those who are wrestling with corrective historiographies, uh, but there's a, a sort of a range of readings that seem to be uh, prevalent in this text. I'm, I'm toying right now with a text in my head where I wanna try to do something very different with the biblical text. Can uh, I change the skin? I was really arguing against the notion of race in scripture, that there yeah. is no mm. such thing as the notion of race in scripture. It's a much later idea. It doesn't fit mm -hmm. in. I'm 100% there even today. Yep. But one of the things I've noticed is as I look at the text, there are a lot of ideas that undergird our contemporary way of understanding what race is. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a chosen group, i.e. a group that's exceptional and above every other group. Right. You have denigrated groups, groups that are put down, the Moabites, uh, the Ammonites, they're the product of uh, incest, the Canaanites, they uh, are the product of immorality. Uh, you start to see these other people being put down in a way, and that sort of lends itself to a racialist lens as well. Uh, how do we look at uh, the way that we, uh, we, through our interpretive lens, lift up key figures like um, Ruth, the Moabite, uh, lift up the good Samaritan i.e. these are the only good ones of their type uh, that presents a sense of exceptionalism among us as well. Uh, mm. We can hate all the other Moabites. We can hate all the other Samaritans, but this is a good one. Uh, and we see that playing itself out in a racial way in our society today. So I'm really toying with that. How do I begin to think about uh, what has the Bible contributed to a racialist lens even before it was thinking in racialized ways? I'm so aware that um, with, well, maybe I can ask it like this, Rodney. Um, uh, inverse has a clear agenda. And um, uh, we would say straight out, it's because Jesus. We're interested in interpreting the scriptures in ways um, uh, that, yes, are devotional, um, but devotional in a way to end all domination. <laughs> we we, we uh, want to see the world made right. Um, I'm aware with texts like this, though, that uh, they often are a mirror. And uh, what it is to, to take a text that, that clearly, even in terms of the handling of 
these texts by ancient Hebrew peoples, there are things introduced that uh, weren't necessarily there. Like, I mean, uh, those who know chapter 11, where uh, the different languages start, chapter 10 has a different telling, and apparently there's already different languages there. Um, in this story, you've already mentioned, like, um, uh, Canaan being added in. Um, if, if you had a student ask in class, is the Bible liberative? Or is that like just an agenda of uh, people uh, such as ourselves? Um, or is the Bible merely a mirror that the important to wrestle is um, uh, to bring forth readings uh, that do look like um, the spirit of the living God in instead of uh, a spirit of death dealing and um, domination? Um, how would how would you answer that question? Because I guess answering as a pastor and answering as like a theologian and professor, is that the same answer for you? Or I'll, I'll leave that open for you to speak to. So let me start off by saying, uh, and I'm going to wrestle with Emerson Powery again here. Uh, so one of the things that I remember Emerson lifting up is that passage where Jesus is in, in an encounter with a lawyer. Uh, mm. And there's, he's asking, you know, what must I do to be saved? And he, Jesus comes back to him and he says, how do you read? Mm -hmm. He looks up the importance of hermeneutics. Uh, that the mm -hmm. way that you read uh, really does shape what it is that you see when you look at the biblical text. Uh, and I think that this is important for us to realize. The Bible is liberative to me. The Bible yeah. is a justice book from start to finish to me. Uh, the Bible does present a way of looking at the world and a narrative that provides access to, uh, to a mythopoeic uh, value for liberation. So uh, the Bible is liberative, but for other people who read it, in a different way, I can see how it can become quite an, a tool of oppression and quite a tool of maintaining an unjust status quo. Uh, you mm -hmm. lift up different passages, you lift up different ways of uh, interpreting the text, uh, and it becomes a powerful tool. Now, I think the fundamental premise behind the Bible, though, is uh, definitely, I, you know, one of the things I say with the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation, is the Bible is a book that's talking about justice from start to finish. Whether it be overt justice that you see in books like the, the prophetic books, or whether it be uh, lifting up basic themes of justice. Uh, uh, we, the Bible raises the concern of eternal life. Why does it raise the concern of eternal life? Why does this come out in Scripture? In part, it comes out in Scripture because people were having conversations like you, did, you had in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, uh, in this book where, uh, you know, if a good man dies he goes to Sheol. If a bad man dies, he goes to Sheol. Uh, there's no difference in their lot. Hevel, uh, hevelim, kol hevel, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Mm. Uh, so we start to see this sort of introduction of the notion of, no, 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 God is going to set things right. And God is going to promise the righteous something greater, something eternal, something bigger. This is the essence of what justice is, that God is going to set things right in this world, and if not in this world, in the next world. Eschatology really develops as a mode of saying that the ultimate aspect of the universe is justice. The theotic mm -hmm. concern that arises in texts of the exile, uh, these things continue to come back and suggest, no, 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 God is fundamentally just. Uh, and then it's not just justice, it's not just uh, notions of liberation, but it's also a notion of unity. The, the more that we evolve uh, in the biblical text, the more that we see these New Testament texts uh, come, uh, come to pass, the more they go back to that same lesson that we got from Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, uh, i.e. we're created but Selim Elohim in the image of God, that we all are fundamentally one, Acts chapter 17, that we all mm -hmm. are uh, to be together around the throne, Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 7, that we all are uh, significant to God and that none of us should be looked down on like Acts chapter 10. Uh, no one is, if what God has called clean, let no one call unclean, i.e. all human beings are clean. All human beings are acceptable before God. Uh, so I think all of these messages are not just in the text, but are driving that biblical narrative. Uh, and depending upon how you look at it, you might be able to get off on the, and I'll say it's the, the wrong track here, the wrong lane. Uh, but the, the, fundamental core for me of the scripture is liberative, uh, is mm. justice oriented, and is presenting a notion of human oneness. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, you know, so I think about um, when I, um, in class with my students, 
And it's, it's interesting the way that even white evangelical students sometimes think, like, I think if I said to them, the Bible's a liberative text, but yeah, of course it is, you know. So, but then, <laughs> but I know that they don't actually read it in that way, most of them, right? And so then I would say, like, I would, you know, um, I would tell them, and just kind of messing with them a little bit, I would say, I can make a stronger argument for slavery with the Bible than you can for against slavery. And I'd let them, I like, I dare you try. And they can't actually come up with an actual like anti-slavery reading of the text. Wow. Um, and so then I begin to like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, these are kind of just helping them think about hermeneutics, like what ways do we read the text, right? Um, how does that, how do we read the text in such ways as it relates to um, a, one that is liberative for women, right? Versus oppressive. But there's particular ways that are consistent in a whole variety of different directions. And I think that once they can begin to see that, like there's a lens that they're not just neutral, right? Mm -hmm. Readers of these texts, mm -hmm. like they've been taught objective, just grabbing things. Um, but but that, it's not easy, I think, for people to begin to see their own lens that they're, they're operating and reading out of. Um, are there ways in which you find helpful to help people even see their own lens, not just mm. that, yeah, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, so uh, the, uh, when we do our exegetical process, we have a wonderful exegetical guideline that I've tried to contribute to over the years. And Brian Blunt, who's one of the premier African-American biblical scholars is our president. Uh, he uh, wrote, we, you've talked about the Africana Bible, but he wrote True to Our Native Land. This yeah. is the first yeah. New Testament commentary written by African-Americans. Uh, yeah. This is the first Old Testament commentary written by African-Americans and diaspora Africans. Uh, mm. But Brian Blunt uh, works with us and he's helped us to lift up this notion of self-exegesis. So before you begin to exegete the text, you have to know who you are as yeah. the reader. What are mm -hmm. the biases that you bring to this experience? How do you view the text as an insider, as an outsider? Uh, what are the uh, experiences you've had that shape you as reader of the text? And this, uh, this comes straight out of uh, womanism. This comes straight out of uh, uh, liberation theology. Uh, you have to know your own prolegomena before you can begin to think about uh, theology, before you can begin to think about. So it's the same kind of thing for biblical interpretation. What is the story that you bring and how does it shape the, shape the story that you see? And how do you see things in the story that, that someone else without your experience may not see? Uh, you're not shaped or preconditioned by your experiences, but it does give you a different lens at which to look at it. So I think that I spent a good deal of time and I think I'll, hopefully people are starting to do that really helping people to assess their own history, realize the role that it plays in the way that they read the text, uh, realize the, I mean, if you come at it with an, a certain ideological bent, you're gonna probably see that ideological bent reflected uh, in the narrative. And mm -hmm. by helping people to see how that works and then realizing the outcomes of that. Right. So one of the things I like to do is to say, um, uh, the Bible, uh, reading the Bible is a dangerous task and it should never be taken on by children. Uh, it is uh, the uh, harm that has been caused by uh, misinterpretations of the biblical text has been insurmountable. And we can talk about uh, Genesis mm. 9 and 10 and the, this, uh, we can talk about uh, Joshua and uh, the, the, the stories there and not just what happens in Palestine today, but what happened in the United States of America with Manifest Destiny the elimination of the indigenous American population. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that you read the text, uh, Genesis chapter 19, the misinterpretation that has been read against LGBTQIA plus people, uh, yeah. reading it through a lens that you know God hates gay people. And uh, these sort of misinterpretations have consequences. Uh, the yeah. Bible is not simply a, a book that can be read inconsequentially. And when you read it through a oppressive lens, it produces not just actions, but even policies in this world that are harmful. So yeah. we need to be cautious. And I think once people begin to understand the biases that they bring and how that shapes their readings, they're more sensitive to being aware of not just how it is that I'm reading, but what are the consequences of the readings that I bring to the text? Mm. One of the things that um, your text, uh, the genesis of liberation um, introduced me to was this incredible figure of James Pennington, um, who uh, I'd never 
um, heard of uh, before, but um, uh, the way that he uh, responded to th these kind of interpretations, and it's almost a bit like that story you you told. It's mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's like a subversive playfulness with it, and he he pushed the literalism of um, these preachers. And uh, I think his response was something like, um, "If we uh, if we find some tel Canaanites." Um, maybe then we can enslave them. So he, like it was his way of actually pushing the ridiculousness of these kind of hermeneutics and the way it's been applied to certain people. Yeah. Rodney, even in the story I heard you tell earlier about um, the lion and the jackass, um, th there seems to be in that um, uh, acknowledgement that this playfulness is a form of survival that um, requires creativity um, uh, to actually make it through another day. And often these texts um, are removed from any context in which uh, they are also written from the same perspective, w whether it be an oppressed people who um, are up against empires. And so stories that are told of um, uh, whether they are angels and people having other people who claim to be mini gods to rule over them and and that's the problem with those people uh, or um, w whether it um, uh, be uh, the apostle Paul and what he seeks to do it, it's it's easy to lose a subversion of what he's um, uh, doing in systems that uh, how to make it not suicidal for women who are joining this community um, who are in slavery. And once they finish this early morning meeting um, uh, with the ecclesia, they're going back and their bodies are subject to masters. And what does good news look like in, in the context of those kind of realities? So you, it's not signing up for a suicidal cult. Um, when we look at Genesis 9 now and, and seek to put it in those kind of contexts, um, what word of life and liberation um, can be spoken from this text? Uh, we haven't named it directly, but uh, um, many scholars would insist that this is a text that includes uh, like violent sexual um, act being part of the shame uh, that it, it is going on. Um, is, is it simply unmasking these realities which are so often covered up and it, this is a, a me too moment to be actually able to name that the text names these realities and unmask them? Uh, how, how do we seek a word of life when reading Genesis 9 that doesn't look like the interpretations of um, uh, basically slavery? Yeah. So uh, a few things, uh, I'm going to start off in one direction, I'm going to come back in another direction. So I'm going to start off by saying, uh, if I were someone like Randall Bailey, I'd say the first thing I might say is that we need to free ourselves from the assumption that every text in the Bible is meant for our benefit, uh, hmm. is liberty, is just. Sometimes the Bible can be a tool of the oppressor, and sometimes it manifests in that way. And we need mm. to free ourselves from the assumption that it's not. Free ourselves from the moralizing lens that always seeks a good moral story, like in the Tower of Babel. What was their sin? We don't know what their sin was, uh, but we try to read it through a moralizing lens. We need to free the Bible to be what it is uh, and recognize that at times you need to critique it. Uh, some things don't need to be affirmed. You know, uh, your, your daughter gets raped by another man. Uh, you give her to that man uh, to be a yeah. wife for life. Uh, what? Uh, come on now. Uh, that's yeah. not a liberative text. That's not a good text. That's not a sexuality of the Bible that we want to replicate. We need to be aware uh, that there are the Bible at times says some problematic things, and we need to be honest and open and accept that. Now, that being said, getting back to that Genesis 9 and Genesis 10 thing, there's something about that story that in addition to uh, the problematic nature of all that's going on, one of the things that the editors, the authors, and the, eventually the subsequent editors of that narrative are doing are saying that every human being on the planet is related. We mm. all come from the same family. We all come from a group of people that have the same mother and father uh, and who were in relationship with each other. Uh, so therefore there is a sense of unity, even in this passage that has been read through a hermeneutic of an oppressive paradigm. Uh, there is a sense of a commonality connection and unity that's ultimately behind this text read in a divisive way. So I think that there are ways of looking at the text that might lift it up. 
but then again, as I said, uh, getting back to that sort of ideological reading of the text, we need to be also just aware. Uh, some texts are just problematic. When we mm -hmm. talk about a text of, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to take this people from the Hittites, the Amorites, the, 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 the all the ites. Uh, you know, we're taking this the Vegemites, we'd say in Australia. <laughs> the Vegemites, exactly. Uh, we're taking the, 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 there's something wrong with that. And we need to critique it. Or if, even if you don't want to critique the text, we need to realize that the text wasn't written for us. And it doesn't give us license to take the land from somebody else. It doesn't give us license to take the rights and privileges from somebody else. It doesn't give us the right to be someone else's oppressor. So mm -hmm. I think that we can, if we begin to keep those kinds of things in mind, it can be incredibly useful for us as biblical interpreters. That's good. That's helpful. And, and just coming back to that other point that Jared brought, I'm curious, because I've heard different scholars um, when get going, uh, chapter nine, verse 22 mm -hmm. with Ham seeing his father's nakedness, yes. I've heard some say it's just a matter of shame of him seeing the nakedness and others, uh, sexual abuse. And I'm curious just to hear you, yeah. um, just say a little bit more on that. So, uh, there's a whole lot of interpretation that's gone on with this passage and a number of different points at, at which people say, what was the sin of Ham in this instance? So some people just say he saw his father naked uh, and that that was the sin. And this seems kind of odd because in the book of Genesis, uh, you realize that uh, people swear oaths by putting their hand on somebody else's thigh. Come on now, you'd be seeing a whole lot if you put your hand on somebody else's thigh uh, with no uh, fruit of the looms on. Uh, so uh, some people say that the sin of uh, seeing his father's nakedness was uh, the act of engaging in a homosexual incestuous act with his father. Uh, so therefore, uh, did Ham rape his father? Did Ham engage in a sexual relations with his father? And this is what's being decried. Other people look at this and say uh, that the sin of Ham was that he sexually mutilated his father, that he engaged in an activity that, was, uh, that damaged his father sexually, and that this is what his father notes when he awakens. And then still others say that uh, if you look at uh, Leviticus chapter 18, uh, to lie with your, uh, your, your, your father would be to lie with your mother. Uh, that what actually Ham does is he has sexual relations with his mother, and then therefore Canaan is produced as the incestuous union of his him sleeping with his mother. And now granted, I think if this was the actual case, they probably would have been a bit more explicit about what took place uh, in the narrative. They would have been a bit more explicit about the time uh, that all this came about uh, and the cursing of all that. But, uh, but these have been different options. My, my ex-wife, uh, Dr. Madeline McClenney, a brilliant scholar uh, who has done some great work on uh, incest uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, takes that perspective on this. Uh, and she reads this passage in relationship to Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Genesis 19, 30 through 38 is the story of Lot uh, and his two daughters. Uh, in the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, they go off, uh, they're in the hill country outside of Sor. Uh, they uh, think that there's nobody else around, so they uh, get their father drunk and have sex with him. And the aftermath of this story is that the, uh, the oldest daughter produces a child from her father, Mu'av, uh, and then that's where the Moabites come from. And then the youngest daughter goes in, has sex with her father, produces children uh, that are uh, from uh, my people, the uh, Ben Ami. Uh, so that's where the Ammonites come from. Uh, Randall Bailey uh, goes back and says, uh, this text reads the enemy as nothing but incestuous bastards. Uh, so uh, Madeline might go back and say, this is what's going on with the Canaanites too. We're reading the Canaanites as the byproduct of incest if we read it through that lens. Now, I tend to work against that because the text itself doesn't seem to give that much, uh, that much uh, detail, A. B, uh, there's a difference between seeing the nakedness and uncovering the nakedness, which is the problem that we see in Leviticus over and over again. Uh, and uh, so that it's sort of a, a bit of a leap to say seeing the nakedness is the same as engaging in an actual sexual act, particularly since seeing the nakedness was resolved when the two brothers went backwards with a blanket and put it over their father who was naked, apparently. So uh, all of this to say, uh, the jury's still out on all of this. Uh, the jury's still out on what the actual issue is, uh, but uh, it's pretty clear what the end point was. The end of the story, 
had to find a legitimating ideology, a reason that said, this is why the people of Canaan are cursed. All right. Well, that's this has been so good. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we just are so grateful. It's um, thoughtful, brilliance, your um, work that you've done through the Africana Bible. We're looking forward to continuing to journey with you as well as the great cloud of witnesses of Black biblical scholars and Africana scholars um, as we do um, that study. And so we're just so grateful. And I'm certainly going to have to pass on to my brother Emerson uh, your your love as well. And you can tell him that uh, I'm grateful to be included in that book. He did most of that work. I just, I was just tagging team with him. So yeah, uh, but brilliant, brilliant scholar, wonderful guy. Uh, good to be with you all tonight. And again, I want to lift up. So you guys saw that one. I want to make sure that you see both of these texts. Yeah, true to our native land is excellent as well. Both of them, exactly. Yeah, uh, because yeah, I think that they're trying to do something different with yeah. the theology, with the, the understanding of hermeneutics and are trying to say that we need to look at these, we need to look at God through different lenses. Mm, we can't right. see how vast God is if we only look through the eyes of, uh, I'm sorry, dead German guys. We need to, mm, right. to look at the Bible, to look at God, to look at uh, humanity through other mm. lenses. Uh, and we might be surprised what we find when we do that. So uh, as we look through African culture and African religion and uh, the, the perspective of women and the perspective of those people who we, whose voices we have silenced, not just not heard, we've silenced Silence. in the past. Mm-hmm. So. Rodney, as way of um, closing our time, I'm wondering if uh, you wouldn't mind um, praying for our theologians, uh, albeit not many uh, in the seminary as much as um, sometimes in the sanctuary, but often on the streets. Uh, would you uh, be able to uh, lift up for, for those um, uh, that are here and will be listening on the podcast? We'd love that. I'd love to do so. Uh, let's look to the Lord. Holy One, it's once again that we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts. We're grateful for this time with sisters and brothers to come together, to delve into your word, to wrestle with your will, to wrestle with your way, to find new understanding, to challenge old held beliefs, to lift up a different understanding of who you are, to realize that you are too vast, too great, to be contained within our limited human minds, to help us understand that we need to see through each other's lens, each other from different places on the screen, each other from different places around the world, each other from different ways of seeing and different ways of being. We need to engage you through everyone's lens if we are to truly have a deeper understanding of you and a deeper understanding of your word. Help us to be those students, Lord. Help us to be your your theologians for the new day, your theologians who speak a different message to your people that they need to hear, that we might truly live into the justice, truly live into the liberation, truly live into the oneness that we find on the pages of your scripture. Lord, we are here today because we are open to being used by you. Mm. We are available to you. Use us for your purposes. We come to you by many names. I come to you in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus the Christ, as I say, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, dear brother. So good to see you. Good to see you as well. Great to be with you all tonight. Thank you so much. And hey, uh, just back to that last question on uh, nature. Uh, Friend me on Facebook. Friend me on Facebook. I take a lot of walks in nature. And that's Mm. where I have my encounters with God more than I do in the church buildings. So uh, that's where I tend to have my theological reflection. So you get to see a lot of them on Facebook. So. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, maybe we should say just quickly, um, where else might people find your work? Is Facebook the best place to connect for you? I think Facebook is good, a good place to connect. I'm working on a, uh, right now in Charlotte, we're working on a truth and reconciliation process that we hope to be, become a way of looking at issues of race around the world. Uh, My basic premise has always been, we can't just look at issues of racism. We have to start looking at the concept of race itself as the fundamental Mm -hmm. thing that uh, undermines the potential for true equality. And until we get rid of, uh, we deconstruct the concept of race and then dismantle the system that it established, we're gonna continue to live through the same racialized uh, ways of being. So uh, working on something called RAP track, R-A-P-T-R-A-C-C. 
uh, which stands for the Reimagining America Project, Truth, Reconciliation, and Atonement Commission Charlotte. You can find it on Facebook. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, what we're trying to do is really develop, uh, we're working with uh, Rabbi Mark Gopin out of uh, George Mason University's Jimmy Carter Center, and really trying to find a way to bring people together uh, that lifts people up and provides a way forward to greater equity going forward. So uh, a lot of, you'll see me doing a lot of work there. I work with the North Carolina NACP, um, the, I guess the healthcare chair of the NACP here. I work with uh, the, in Charlotte with the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. So uh, I try to do a little thing and we've got another group called the Justice Action Mobilization Network that's really trying to work on uh, how do we, how do we make a cleaner, greener world? How do we overcome issues of climate change by creating a green environment and a green economy that lists black and brown people and gets them in the black financially? Uh, how do we uh, help to eliminate poverty by addressing a targeted shift in uh, the way that our economic, our energy production in our larger system? So uh, you can find me in some of those spaces. Awesome, fantastic. Yep. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.